Hey guys, and welcome back to the Yes Means Yes podcast. Um, this week we have on two guests, Isabel Fry and Crystal Lynch, with the Domestic Violence Center located here in Auburn, Alabama. And my name is Faith Namshev. I'm a victim advocate outreach coordinator with Rape Counselors. I'm going to let my coworker introduce herself real quick. Hey, I'm Amanda Carpenter, and I'm also with RCA, and I am the victim advocate slash outreach specialist. So I'm going to go ahead and let Isabel and um, Crystal kind of talk about their roles and what they do at the Domestic Violence Center. Hi, I'm Isabel Fry. I am now the program supervisor for the Domestic Violence Intervention Center. Um, pretty much I oversee outreach and things that, you know, the day-to-day -day business. Um, I used to be or still oversee the legal and sale program for all of our six counties, which is Lean, Macon, Russell, Chambers, Tallapoosa, Randolph. And this is actually Crystal Lynch. I'll take it over. I am Crystal Lynch, and I work with the Domestic Violence Intervention Center. I am a sales specialist. Um, and SAIL stands for Special Assessment Interve Intervention Liaison. Um, and I'm also their legal advocate. Uh, the SAIL program actually specializes um, in helping women who have children and um, are fleeing domestic violence and are trying to do it on their own and become self-sufficient. There's a lot of resources that we help them with. And um, one thing that you have to they have to do to qualify for the program is you have to have children and you have to be a domestic violence victim. And so we help with all of those things such as housing and um, a lot of other childcare resources, counseling, being a legal advocate for the Domestic Violence Intervention Center just means that you advocate for women who have been in domestic violence situations. Um, we help them file protection orders, which I'm sure that we will get into all of that later on in the podcast. Um, and we go to court with them. We speak to the judges if we have to. We don't testify, but we advocate in whatever way that we can. Perfect. All right. Thank you guys so much. So we're going to kind of really just like break it down to the basics just for anyone who might be listening who's not really familiar. So what is domestic violence? Like what is the definition of that? And I know um, we kind of refer to it as DV too. So DV is domestic violence, but I'll let y'all kind of define that. So I feel it's, it's any act, you know, and it's just kind of interesting that, you know, we always hear about the physical or sexual act and it being abused, but there's, you know, there's a psychological and a economical part of this as well and I feel that especially during these times of you know with COVID and things like that that have come up in our world lately you're starting to see those other parts of it and it's not just the physical and sexual part anymore so I feel like those are the key components when it comes to domestic violence do you agree yeah I agree okay so how do y'all see domestic violence and sexual assault intersect with one another? Is that something you see a lot um, when you have victims? Well, actually, what do you guys, do y'all call them victims? Do you call them survivors? Do you call them consumers? Do you call them clients? What, how do you address them when they come into the shelter? We address them as survivors and clients. When we talk about them with, you know, to each other, we, we, all, we they're referred to as clients. But, you know, they've survived that act or that abuse already. So we're transitioning. And I feel like that just also empowers that woman as well, that they're transitioning to that next phase of life. They're no longer a victim. Absolutely. That's exactly what we do at RCA as well. 
So do y'all see um, domestic violence and sexual assault intersect a lot um, when you have survivors come in and talk with you guys and stay at the shelter with you? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, a lot of times is a big part of a lot of the stories. Um, and I think it goes hand in hand with that control and the abuse. And they, I think that they definitely intersect a lot more than victims or survivors, sorry, I call them victims, um, talk about and then as you get to know them and you do assessments, you start to see that they don't even realize that there's sexual assault and sexual abuse. And, and you get to kind of dissect that intake and talk to them. And then they realize, like Isabel was saying earlier, that it's not just the sexual and the physical, but it's so much more. It's financially, it's sexually. I think all of that comes out the more that we are teaching them and talking to them about the actual domestic violence acts. You know, and on that note, especially when we're dealing with, oh, with women who are actually married or they've been in a long-term relationship with the abuser, they no longer see that well, I don't really have the option to say no. Like, it's almost my duty. I feel like we counter that a lot. And it's like, no, 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 you need to realize that you still say no, and it means no. No, you know, they just because you're married does not allow you to, it doesn't mean that you have to oblige with that. Absolutely not. And so I think, like Crystal was saying, once we get into that assessment, that needy and greedy, and we're learning all the details, it's like, wait a minute, you know, you said no, let's, let's go back. Let's go back and look at all these incidents. Yeah. That's definitely yeah. something that we hear a lot, I would say, um, is that marital rape can't happen. But yeah, so it's good that y'all brought that point up. I'm sorry, Crystal, were you going to say something? Yeah, I think rape is something that, you know, you're dealing with so much hurt and so much pain and the physical, psychological, the mental abuse that rape is something that's very hard to talk about and even acknowledge for survivors because it holds such shame for them. And once you can get them to a place where they acknowledge the rape, it's almost like you kind of can see freedom. Like it's something that they're so ashamed of, you know, like there's so many people that go through the physical and the mental and the psychological, but when you start talking about the rape, you can kind of just see that it's like this relief, like, okay, me too, you know, like, yes, I, I definitely agree with this. And so I think that was just a very good question because we don't ever really get to talk about that a lot. We know that it's there and we encourage that if that, that aspect of the abuse is there for us to be able to talk about it, but yeah, that's all I have to say. So, um, Amanda, did you have anything? Okay, perfect. Sorry, you just looked like that. Um, so do you guys consider domestic violence a community issue? <laughs> that's, a, oh, that's a big question. Um, I think, so I'm not originally from Alabama, neither is Crystal. So it's a very interesting when you start the demographics and you start looking at things that way and especially coming in Alabama especially some of these rural counties that we do work for or work with um it's still very taboo 
just how sexual assault is still very taboo. You know, you have some people like, you know, Crystal and I, uh, we used to tag team a lot when we would do outreach just to speak to people. And it's like, that doesn't happen here. You know, so it's just that mindset. And I feel just educating, again, it goes back to education. If you can edu educate people, it makes them more aware and what to look for. So I think it's just more, so is it a community issue? I think, you know, I think that's where outreach comes in hand and having more, you know, fundraisers or uh, functions out in the community to spread that word and be like, this is what it is. And, you know, or some people just have no idea, like this has been happening to me for 25 years and without them realizing that's not a life, you know? So we, we see that and hear that quite a bit, I feel like. Um, so again, I always lean back to, you know, we need to educate our communities about what DV is, what sexual assault is and what's right and what's wrong. I just feel like people tend to get lost in that gray area. I think that's, it's, when I, when I started this job, our executive director at the time had us do something that was a report that we had to report every year, and I've done it ever since I've been here, but our job was to call every single county that we were serving at the time and get the DV number of calls that they have received that year. And so this is before I started doing outreach and before I even um, knew what county. Well, I had all six at some point. And so, you know, you call these police departments and you speak to all these people and you're like, hey, you know, I'm calling to find out what the number of domestic violence calls were for, you know, September 2018 to October 2019, whatever the numbers are. And in some of these very small counties, let's say, chambers making you know in one year they've had 575 domestic violence calls and you're kind of like wow it's so eye-opening and then you start the aspect of outreach right where you go and you're talking to all these people and you're like hey we're from the domestic violence intervention center and we just want to bring awareness and you know you take two people like me and isabel we're very passionate you know we work in the field we see it every day you know we're on the phone with you know anybody that needs any kind of assistance and you have these people that look you in the eyes and say oh yeah well thank god that's thank god drug abuse is the biggest issue in our community or thank god this is the biggest issue in our community that will not acknowledge it so to answer your question do i think it's a community issue absolutely do i think that it's you know the entire community in east L no, I think that we have worked really hard to bring awareness and I think that we have worked really hard to make sure that people even really understand. At first, I would just be like, okay, wow, and I, I would kind of walk out and just be so taken like back and be like, wow, these people are kind of in denial. And, and now that I've developed a new passion for it, I kind of don't leave until they understand that, yes, um, drug abuse and drug addiction is definitely an issue but domestic violence is definitely an issue in the community and a lot of times it goes hand in hand and so um you know not in an ugly way but in just a very passionate way because i want women men anybody to know that there is a way out and that there could be a community that can rally 
and, and help and use these resources. A lot of times people don't even know that we're here. And, and I can't remember the exact number, but this agency has been here for over 30 years. And, you know, it's amazing that till this day, people will not acknowledge. Now, some people are open in the community and I have had some great conversations. I have gotten calls from people that I thought they didn't believe in anything I just said. Like we are seeing a change within our six counties that we serve because we have been out in the field and we have pleaded with these people to acknowledge that there is domestic violence. Like that. I always say that we have to talk about the things that people don't want to talk about. Like it's our job to talk about those things. Um, yeah. Thank you. I really and we, get, we get a lot of that too. Um, just like I, I had said earlier in a podcast, you know, when I did my internship, I did East Alabama mental health. And, you know, when I would go out in the community and talk about, you know, drugs and alcohol you know, people would sit there and they would listen or they would come to your table. But when I started working at Rape Counselors, you know, I would go out there and put a table out there right beside East Alabama Mental Health. And you would literally see them turn their, like, turn their head so they wouldn't have to make eye contact with you. Right. Um, so when I first started at Rape Counselors, it was very... Um, it was, I mean, it was hard because you're so used to people coming up to you, wanting to talk to you, and they want your little goodies on your table. But when it has rape on it, they they turn their head. And so, you know, of course, being an advocate, you know, I, I can, like, hey, you know, try to bring them to the table. But it's almost like they're even embarrassed to be seen at your table. Absolutely. So um, I'm sure you guys, you know, y'all see that as well. And it, it does make your hard, um, your job harder because you do have a hard time reaching people even though you're sitting in the middle of a field with a lot of other people, but they seem to be going to the other tables instead of yours because they just don't want to be associated with it because there is such a stigma with sexual assault and domestic violence. So uh, that's why it's so important and we're gracious for you guys for us to be able to work together um, and help those in the community that may come to us but don't necessarily want to come domestic violence or vice versa. So, together. So, so speaking of that, so let's talk a little bit about your emergency um, services. So like how does that exactly work? So we have a 24-hour crisis line, um, and it's available even right now during all of this, and it's ha it has not stopped. Um, you can always call that hotline number, and you know they're going to do a real quick assessment, see what you're looking for. Um, we obviously we have a safe house, and uh, we all we actually offer a number of resources, um, especially for outreach. We offer, like Crystal mentioned earlier, counseling. We have a child advocate. We have a case manager. We have actually two uh, sale and legal advocates. Um, we have a shelter coordinator. You know, we have all of these resources, and sometimes I feel that people don't realize we're like an open. The moment that you speak to one of us, we just open you up to hundreds of resources within the community. And um, but obviously, I mean, even sometimes some women haven't. You know, they're thinking about leaving. They haven't really decided that yet. 
And that's when we can be like, hey, we'll go ahead and meet with you. Let's come up with a safety plan. Because in that moment, you know, and I'm speaking actually as a survivor from domestic violence, in that moment, you're not thinking, I need to grab my driver's license. I need to grab my social security card. You know, sometimes you're just like, I just need to close it on my back and let's go because this is my moment to flee. And so, you know, when we talk to women like that, I feel like we're really giving it our all because I know, I know me personally, I also see it as, I feel like that's a younger me, you know, and I'm like, I need to get you that help that I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to get or wasn't available at that time, to be very honest. So, you know, I think we take it all to heart. I've seen all of us at one time or another have come down because there's an emergency you know, and it doesn't matter the time, you know, I, I know our personal lives might not like that too much, but you know, that's, that's our passion. It's like, no, we're here to see you succeed. We're here to see you turn that page and let's start a whole new chapter. And so as offering so many services, I just feel like a lot of people don't utilize them correctly. Or maybe there's sometimes there's also some shame, like we were talking about, you know, with coming to the realization that we're a victim. You know, I know it was very hard for me to swallow that at one time. I was like, are you kidding me? Me? No way. I'm not a victim. Like, I can overcome anybody, you know, and that's not true. That's not true. We all need help. And sometimes that's, I feel like, the hardest thing to swallow. So my other question is, so just say someone gets in touch with you guys. Do you guys give them your address and they come to you or do they go through the police? Like, how do they find you guys? Well, once they call the hotline, we, as of right now, obviously because of COVID-19, are only doing over-the-phone appointments unless we can meet them at DHR. Um, but usually, Yes, we don't necessarily give them an address because we don't have, I mean, we have a physical address, but we don't give it out. We kind of just assess the situation and if they qualify for sale and, and or legal, we go to a DHR office because that's the offices that we work out of unless they absolutely can't meet. Of course, they can come and meet in our room. If they're doing outreach most of the time, they come to our administrative office and we meet with them. But if somebody's seeking shelter, um, they call the 24 hour hotline, you know, we go through an assessment. Again, Crystal's right, with the COVID questions, there's obviously a couple more questions that we're taking precautions all the way around for the people who are there, residents, or even ourselves. And we have, is what's considered a safe spot. You know, we, I get information about what time are you gonna be there. We have somebody who's, we have somebody on call constantly that can go and meet that family or that person and bring them to our safe house but you know just to protect everybody in around the area or including ourselves and who's here um we that's that's how we handle that privacy and that confidentiality is you know we'll say hey we're going to meet you here and also just you just you also want to be aware self-aware is just sometimes you you know i've learned that being out more in the public or doing more you know social speaking or social events People tend to not start now recognizing you with what agency, and you just never want somebody to follow you. And how do you know you're not taking, you know what I mean? It's just you have to be self-aware and conscious of that all, at all times. That's a very good point. Um, so I know we've kind of touched on this a little bit, um, y'all going over the counties and stuff, but what populations exactly do you serve at DPAC? Like who is eligible for your services? Everybody. Everyone. <laughs> 
<laughs> say something. I don't know how you edit this whole thing, but I totally said I totally said women with children prior to coming here. That's I worked for a women and children's facility, so I'm so used to saying women and children because obviously we we got you. Yeah. Oh, and so if I could redo that part, we serve everybody. <laughs> I said women and children, but oops. <laughs> if you're cool, I'm just gonna leave like this part in because I mean this is just kind of like free flow speech like it's not like super formal but um so I actually did not know that so if you were to have um a male survivor of domestic violence is this something could you offer them housing yeah absolutely okay. so it's like not anymore no absolutely not I mean the only thing is that we deal with intimate partners um, so because, and we'll get into that, like with PFAs, like there's now a section on the PFA that you can put it on a family member. Um, but in regards with us, we deal with intimate relationships, but it doesn't matter if you're the male and you're trying to escape, or if you're the woman, if you're single, if you have children, whatever the case, whatever the case may be, we're here to help anybody. Yeah, we've definitely had, have had male clients um and, it, and it's interesting you know but it doesn't take our passion away or it doesn't make a difference like we still feel very much like our job is to advocate and i think that sometimes just within the domestic violence circles um people have talked about how oh well when y'all get a male client is it is it weird is it different is it uncomfortable no because they need help just as much. I mean, we had a male client. We advocated for him. Like, you know, I mean, we just, we were so passionate about his situation. We wanted to see him, like, be set free, literally, from his abuser. And, um, you know, but, yeah, we serve all genders, races. I mean, disabled, pregnant. We, we will do an assessment with anybody. So let me ask you guys, so we kind of touched on it earlier, but there are some red flags and warnings that, you know, people should look out for um, when they're talking to their friends and family, you know, that are experiencing um, domestic violence. So, and I also have another question. So with domestic violence, um, do y'all still call it domestic violence or do you interchange intimate partner violence? Like, do y'all refer to it? As, I just always go back to domestic violence, you know, because whether it's okay. in or not, I, it, you know, it's the basis of the foundation is domestic violence. Um, okay. But like, you know, with red flags, you know, it's very interesting. It's, um, I feel like sometimes we can kind of read into things too much because even with each other, you know, with within ourselves, like we know how to read. Like, what's wrong today? Like, something's wrong. Like, I know that there's something. You know, something's not right. And I think it just makes you a better observer. You know, we all know. Obviously, somebody has a black eye. It's something that we can see. But you know, when you start taking like in this heat, Alabama is extremely hot. <laughs> um, and if we started to notice people in nothing but long sleeves, I, you know, that's a that that's me automatically. I'm like. You know, are we hot? Are you cold? Is are you not feeling well? Like I'm starting to ask all of these questions because you know a lot of times when you start grabbing, you leave, you just start leaving prints. You know, um, and I also feel like you know when they start, when the abuser is 
using your family against you or starts um, pulling you away from friends and family. Like you didn't make it to a function. Why weren't you there? Or hey, I you know I called you a couple of times to come out to the barbecue. You didn't make it. And especially knowing that person that they're kind of that social butterfly and they're not making things anymore, making events. That's a huge red flag to all of us. Um, and then, you know, it's so, especially like right now with COVID-19 and everything, I feel a lot of people are gravitating more to, there's a lot of depression coming along with that. So they're gravitating towards a coping mechanism. And sometimes that's alcohol, but sometimes that's pills. You know, if we're noticing that our loved one is sleeping longer than eight hours or they're taking, you know, naps, four hour naps during the day and you're not pregnant, then there's something else going on, you know? Um, so I think it's just more being diligent and being, you know, self-aware and also just aware of everybody around you. And sometimes people just don't want to talk about it. And sometimes you need to be like, okay, pull that person aside. what's going on. You know, you're not the same person that you were two weeks ago. The only difference that I noticed is that now you're seeing this person or maybe this person. So it's just being aware of those kind of things. I think, um, oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead with what you're saying, Crystal. Um, red flags. I think for me, it goes back to control. And so a very big red flag and I can speak to this from experience, is just the control that comes with a domestic violence situation. You know, they start to try to control your appearance and, you know, try to control where you go. They limit your visitation. Like Isabel was saying, you know, you start to feel isolated and secluded because, you know, you can't talk to that person because of whatever reasons you can't have these friends because you've been honest with these friends about how abusive I was and now they don't like you and you don't want them to take you away from me. So, you know, you got to block them. You got to cut them off going through each other's phones, just all of that toxic behavior, um, is part of the red flags. And it, it may not seem like anything because I know for me, like I can justify, you know, those things because you think like oh they're just worried or concerned or whatever and at the end of the day it's it's abuse well i think it's hard when you look at like examples and they try to romanticize like possessiveness and he's just trying so hard for her or, or she's just like really loves him she can't let it go so i think that makes it like doubly difficult because people are seeing it over and over again in the media and this is supposed to be romantic when really it's just it's a toxic relationship it's abusive relationship absolutely absolutely like you nailed it i mean you see so many posts or memes you know and it's just like oh that's so funny or i wish i had a boyfriend who was checking in on me all the time no 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 that's borderline stalking at this point yeah. you know they're just not aware of it and it's just it's it's so amazing how wrapped up we get in that and it's almost just to just fit in that norm you know it's yes you said that perfectly yeah. very harmful for, sorry okay. I was just gonna say uh, I think it's really harmful for the younger generations who are seeing it because they're on social media they're the ones who are seeing this they're the ones who haven't had experience with relationships so if the only experience they're seeing is like movies or like you said these memes and stuff um, that's how they're gonna base how a relationship should be so it's definitely important I think that 
like you guys said, like your outreach services and stuff. And we actually go into the schools and talk about safe dating and like um, sexual abuse, which is really good. And we've had, goodness, so many um, 16, 17 year olds come up to us afterward and be like, I think I was in an abusive relationship and I had no clue. Yeah. So, Wow. Just like the education. That's, that's, that's wonderful that you guys are doing that. Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. wow. hmm. that's really cool. just, I mean, you just gave me an idea. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not sure how that's going to look now with COVID in the fall, but we will, we will see. But sorry, go ahead, Amanda. I was just talking about our, um, uh, safe dating curriculum we do. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, um, Just, you know, how a lot of um, abusers like to make the person feel like it's their fault. Like, well, if you wouldn't have done that, then, you know, it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have done that to you. I wouldn't have said that to you. It's your fault you made me do it. And it's because I love you so much. Um, So shall I say. But we'd already been done. We're good. Is key, absolutely, and I mean, it's you hear it time and time when you hear the story so many times as we do, you know. Well, he only had a drink that night, you know, when he, you know, he had a bad day, or she was she got into an argument with her family and she had to take it out on me. It's just, it's it's a manipulation, and I mean, they learn it very very well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, so this is a very loaded question. Um, do you guys think that the legal system fails survivors? And <laughs> if so, how? I know this is this is a tough one. <laughs> um, that is a tough question. Um, I think there's several variables to actually consider when you ask that type of question. Um, you know. Both being legal advocates, because I still do that every now and then, um, and you go to court and you see the punishment or the severity of the felony or if it's a misdemeanor, whatever they may be, turn out to be, but when you really start going to court after court case after court case, I feel that there's not enough actually being done, you know. Um, I know we work with actually several judges in the community, and there are some that I'm like, hands down, are just straight advocates for domestic violence. Just the passion that they have when they're on the bench, and you're like, okay, everything's going to be fair, you know? Um, but then I also feel like there are sometimes a lack, and I don't know if it's just maybe a lack in community resources, and maybe that's why we're not getting that, that abusers or victims survivors are not getting that type of help because I know one judge in particular, she makes them go to anger management. She makes them see, uh, do a mental health evaluation. Like she, she's putting all these right things into place. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't do that. Or you just do, if you don't have anything else going on in six months, we're going to go ahead and just drop that to a misdemeanor C. Well, wait a minute. You just broke the chair on her back, but we're going to drop this to a misdemeanor seat because this is your first charge. And it might be just because this was her first time that actually actually even made a phone call, you know? And mm-hmm. so, um, I think there's a lot of things that need to be changed, but obviously that all takes time, especially when you're considering the legal system. It's not something that you're going to snap a finger and then, Hey, you know, we're going to be able to do this. But I also think that's where doing outreach 
and also becoming faces in the court system, you know, they know that when we go to a PFA court, they're expecting one of us. Right. You know, so, you know, just even now our faces, they're getting to be familiar with it. And I think that helps out a lot. I know we do, we work actually, and I will say this again, I mean, we work in a wonderful community that everybody seems to be really supportive of what we do. Again, I know in some places it's kind of taboo, but at least with most of the judges that I've had to work with, they're very reasonable and very open to it. You know, some judges will just say, we're not going to listen to that. We already have a plan. We know what we're going to do. And um, other judges are like, what do you think? What, is, what, are, what are other people, what are other court systems doing that you think that, is, that you've seen beneficial? And that's where I go back to mental health assessments. Like, I don't understand why we're not working together because obviously they're, they're 90, 80 something percent of the time there's something else going on. And we're not getting to the root of it. We're just allowing that cycle to continue. Yeah. Um, do I think the legal system? Let's not ask for that question. Has failed <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I think that it's failed men, women, children. I think um, that domestic violence has kind of become this thing where you know these reports are made and these people go up there and you know judges get to hear the whole story and then the decision is made and a lot of the details don't really matter because it's just another domestic violence case and i think that when you're an advocate and i think that when you're passionate and you do get into the details of course they can't know every single thing they have tons of cases and uh, other things going on but do i feel like at times it's kind of just blown off and it's kind of just looked at like oh here we go this is another another domestic violence case and you know we're just gonna say two days in jail and, and that's it when we know the severity and the dangerous situation we know that you know this man probably needs to be away I think I have been so blown away at times with the don't click on it. <laughs> with the with the um, legal system because what bothers me the most is when it involves children, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a very heavy thing. I think that I may even get emotional <laughs> if I have to talk about this because it just has failed so many children and has put so many children and, and men and women at risk um but i will say this something that has helped me and i have learned is that judges have seen a lot of this too where they believe in a case and we believe in a case and we go up there and we're advocates and we've done the intakes and we've done all that and then it turns out that victim wasn't serious or she went and saw him the night before or he went and saw her the night before and it kind of feels like well all this work that we've put in which we know that's the cycle we understand we're not angry but at the same time i'm sure that they've seen a lot of that i don't know if the legal system like gets a seminar once a year i just think that maybe 
um, you know, we need to be able to talk to some of these judges more or, you know, kind of, I don't want to say like set a fire, you know, but like kind of, yeah, kind of talk to them and tell them like, no, you, you might have seen, and I can't think of what the word is. It's not cynical. Is that what I'm trying to think? Is what, I don't know what the word is where you just kind of become accustomed to this. Kind of desensitized. Yeah, that too. There's another word I'm thinking though, but, <laughs> but that's a good one. Yeah, you just kind of become like, oh, this is routine. This is what yeah. we do. It's circuit civil court. I mean, we're going to have 10 PFAs, you know. Um, but, yeah. but I think that's also where when somebody, if a survivor reaches out to us and they want to go forth with a PFA, you know, we prepare them well enough to be like, okay, this is not just like any other case because we're more diligent about how we're going to approach things. You know, when it comes to police reports, when it comes to photos, when it comes to their um, their testimony of how what transpired in that use and why they should be getting that PFA. And I just feel like I think it goes back to education. We don't have people who are educated enough. So when they go in front of the judge, it's just like you're just completely scattered. You have no idea what to say. And you're just like, well, this and this and that. Oh, and he did this or she did this. And it just becomes a battle. And I feel like a lot of times the judge is just like, okay. We need a, I need to get to the big picture here. And we have a judge that actually uses that. I want the big picture here. Um, and um, even though I love him, I think he's wonderful. Um, but, you know, and I think that's why we're, you know, between Crystal and I and the rest of actually the rest of DVIC, we try to get out that we're here and we have legal advocates because you can't handle it on your own. If you have no legal experience whatsoever, mm -hmm. it is extremely overwhelming. And eventually, mm -hmm. even the paperwork alone, I've seen women who are like, oh, just forget it. Just forget it. Because it's so much legal jargon that you can't keep up with. So speaking of that, Isabel, so you keep saying PFA. Can you kind of explain what a PFA is and kind of like how, you know, a survivor would obtain one? And how common it is that, you know, you guys work with someone that receives those, the PFA? Can you kind of talk about the PFA? Yeah, so PFA is a protection from abuse order. Um, the process and the process is really easy. It sounds really easy, but it's not. You know, you go to the circuit clerk, you petition for the forms, you fill out, you turn it into the clerk, and then you get something in the mail saying you have a PFA court date, and you have a hearing, and that's it. But so much goes into just filling out that PFA paperwork that, you know, when I, I'm going to speak for myself because I know when I sit down with somebody and we're going over the PFA paperwork, like I'm like, we're getting pictures. I need to know what happened. We're getting screenshots of those text messages. Um, we're taking photos. I need, you know, everything possible so that when we submit this PFA, these are, these are our reasonings and we have a ton of them by this time. And, you know, I tend to meet, I meet with a client um, first to tell me their story, what's happened, what's transpired throughout this time. And then we kind of break it down. All right, the last six months, what's happened? The last three months, what has happened? And I'm very, I'm all about documentation. They probably hate me for that. But I'm like, I need you to get a scrap, of, a scrap piece of paper and I want you to write a timeline because it's really easy for us to remember things. But when you're in front of a judge, it's not that easy. You know, give me a timeline of these events because when you're in front of a judge, your opinion is out that window. 
And a lot of people don't like to think that. I need facts. And what do you have to back up that fact? So I'm very, I'm very adamant. Like when I meet with a client, we're going for a PFA, we're going for court. I mean, I'll meet with them a week before and then probably the day before preparing. Like this isn't the way you're going to respond. You know, it's not coaching. You're not coaching anybody. You're just trying to get them to say the words that you know that are there. But they just don't know how to present it at that point. Um, so, and with, within our clients or the population that we currently serve, I feel like most of my clients always win for a PFA, but I'm like, you know, they did wrong. We're going to make them pay. That's my mentality. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying, you know, if somebody truly was harming you, then they need those repercussions to come. And I'm not, I'm not going to back down from something. Um, I don't know if that's a good trade or a bad trade, but also at the same time, sometimes when you catch a when you catch a victim or now a survivor in that, that moment, they're like, "Yeah, let's go forward." But the moment they start hearing from family members, they start getting text messages. You let some days go by that passion to go forth. You no longer see it. They start now having doubts. Well, how is this going to affect this? How is you know? And you start hearing, and so when I meet with somebody, I'm very real, and I'm very like, what is our end result? Are you, is it just, are you just doing this because you're trying to set an example? Are you doing this because, you know, we've just had enough, because we're going to, I'm going to back you in any way that you want me to, but when we go to court, we need to be on the same page, because the last thing we need is for a surprise to come in, and then it's like, wait a minute, where did, what, what happened? And so, I'm very adamant about you know, getting those facts, hearing the story, and getting the evidence that we need to go forth and so that we can get this. Because sometimes a PFA is not honored. You know, that is the truth. It's not always honored. And if I know if we're involved, we are going to do the utmost that we possibly can to get it. And another good thing about DVIC is actually we have an attorney that works with us and is absolutely free to our victims. You know, he goes to court for them. So, you know, especially when sometimes when we deal with clients who are very timid or just they've gone through so much abuse that they're so hurt and broken, really, at that point that you wouldn't be able to get anything out of them. You know what I mean? And having that attorney is sometimes just that little bit of a push that they needed. And it's, and it's actually wonderful to see that when it actually goes out that way and, you know, you're able to service somebody that way. About the protection orders, I just wanted to say that um, I really have so much respect and commend any victim that files a PFA because there's so much fear that goes into it. There's so many questions, but I have seen women become, women and men, anybody that has filed a protection order, so empowered. And you know that they are afraid of the abuser. You know that the last thing that they want to do is stand in a courtroom. I mean, you know, you have a lot of victims dealing with PTSD and mental illness and all kinds of other things. The last thing they want to do is stand in front of a judge directly across from the abuser and say, hey, these are all the things that happened. But um, I think that it's, I think it's worth it. I think that um, if somebody decides to file a protection order, the good thing is we do have an attorney like Isabel was saying, um, and you have a lot of support. And once you're in there and you can actually think through the things that you have been through, 
I think that it's okay, but to get up there is such a challenge. And I just, I have so much respect for victims that decide to follow through with a protection order. That's all I wanted to say. Well, that kind of, well, okay, Amanda. So how is a restraining order different from a PFA? Is it the same thing? No, <laughs> it's not. It's, it's not. It's so difficult because when you start breaking it down, like I feel like even when you do a PFA and if you're married and have children, you're in a completely different ball game. Like there's just so many things. It's like, so we really, when we look, when we hear a story and we're assessing it and it's like, okay, I want to follow with um, some, whether it's a PFA, whether it's a restraining order or anything like that. You know, we gather all that information to be like, okay, what is actually going to better serve you, your situation, and if you have kids? Because we also need to protect those children. Um, so there's a huge difference on which route we might say, okay, P the PFA is not going to work because you have children together. Now, is it state involved? I mean, there are just there's there's so, so many, many categories yeah. that you have to take into consideration. So... The first thing that we were going to say was PFA, obviously, because a restraining order, I felt, I always felt that the restraining order, I felt there was more legal holding to the PFA as opposed to the restraining order, in my, in my view, um, or just from what I've seen even in um, you know, criminal court and things like that, I see the statue of DV much higher than I would a restraining order, if that makes any sense. So... Again, I'm very I'm going going for it hundred percent and I'm gonna get the most that I possibly can out of it. So and that's and that's why it's so important um, that someone that is in a domestic violence situation um, is able to get in contact with you guys and be able to use you as a resource because you can help guide them with those questions mm -hmm. because right. they won't know the answer to those questions and you can help them with okay, well this is probably our best solution for this situation because everybody's situation is different and one person's situation may be completely different from someone else but you guys as advocates your number one priority is them mm -hmm. um, and the police officers do a wonderful job as well but you guys are more committed to helping them make the right decision for them for their situation um, you're able to look at the whole picture and be able to have the compassion and empathy to show that survivor instead of them just going in a place or saying, well, this is, or, or a lawyer saying, okay, well, this is, this is what you can do. Which one do you want to do? You guys can help them talk through that situation. So um, you guys are, you know, it's awesome to use you guys as a resource, and that's why it's so important. Um, for organizations just like rape counselors to tell, you know, our survivors about you guys and police officers and everybody because it, it takes a village, right, to help everybody and we have to work together. And I do think um, because we also serve four counties, um, we serve, you know, Lee, Chambers, Macon, and Tallapoosa that, you know, we're not just helping Lee County where we are, where our buildings are, we're helping outside and so being able to help each other it just makes it better for the survivor because they're getting all the help they need 
So, Absolutely. I mean, Amanda, you and I have been on cases with the several person, and you know, they just yes. felt even more empowered when we were both in court with them, where they were looking towards the both of us, you know, when they needed us. Yes. So, you know, just us having that relationship also, it, yeah, like you said, it's just so vital. Yes, and you know, and I think a lot of people, you know, like, oh, well, they have family members or they have someone to help them through it. Just, you know, I think people don't understand is there's some people out there that literally have no support system and we are their support system um, because most people are like, well, I have a friend or I have a family member or I have this or I mean, some people don't have anybody and when they do have somebody, they're toxic. They're not helping them in the situation. They're just seeing it one way. Why would you stay with him? Why are you allowing him to treat you that way? Why don't you just leave? Those are like the worst questions you can ask a survivor. They have their reasons. And it may not make sense to somebody, but that's their reason. It may be because they want to be able to eat the next day or have shelter over their head. You may not understand. And, I mean, no one is going to go for you guys for help until they know about you. And second of all, I mean, they do have to be ready. They have to be all ready. And so saying that, how often do you guys see where they come to you and they leave and then they come back and they come back? Do you see that often? Because they have completely made up their mind. Um, I think we see that too. I think Faith and I see that where, you know, well, he was my, you know, boyfriend or my ex-boyfriend and I don't want him to get in trouble and they're not quite there, but then they come back because they've had time to think about it. So, you know, our job is to support, not support them, not give them advice, but it, it is helpful for them to know what options they have because some people just don't know the options um, and they don't have the support to help them. And like you were saying, we've, you know, we've worked with survivors before together and both of us working together um, strengthen that, that individual just for them to have the motivation to say, I can do this. So it, it's it's a big deal. Definitely. It is very much so. Very much. All right. So we have one more question for you guys. What final message do you want um, victim survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault to know? I I mean I know I mean I guess for me personally it's just that there is no judgment. You know, despite despite whether you left five times and you finally reached your point or, you know, if it's the same sex or if anything, anything, there is literally no judgment. The moment that you speak to one of us, you know, we're taking you for face value. We are here for you and we're here to back you a hundred percent. And my biggest thing is, you know, I know personally is just, I want to see that we have so many success stories and I want, I, when they move on or they transition to their new life, their new home with their family. And, you know, even to the point where they're like, I don't even get to see you every day anymore. And, you know, it really does hurt your heart as well, but you know, it's the best thing for them. And I truly like, those are the moments that I'm like, okay, you know, all of those phone calls, all of that, you know, because it can be stressful, you know, you're just like, this is why I do this. And we are, and we want that sincerely for everybody that we speak to. You know, I, I know I can truly say that. And I think that's what keeps you thriving when you're doing this type of work because it, it can, it can be weighing on you, but I just think that's just so beautiful. So I, I'm really, 
I'm really always on, I'm behind anybody and I want to see you succeed in that next phase and you get to that, to that, almost, I would say almost that homo sapiens where everything's now finally normal. You know, everything, life is the way it should be. And so I think that's right. And a lot of people think, oh, you know, being in the South, you know, does it really happen to men? You know, we, all of that goes out the door with us. We just want to be here to help you. Or at least I know that that is a big thing for me. Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, one of the other things is actually we do have a 1-800 and a local number. So our 1-800 number is 1-800-650-6522. And then our local number is 334-749-1515. And that's a 24 hour number. So that is the number that they would need to reach out to to receive your services. Yes, ma'am. Perfect. Okay. Um, for anyone listening, I'm going to actually put those down below in the comment or like the information box so that you don't have to like worry about writing that down. But all right. Do you guys have any final comments? Anything you want to say? No, we appreciate the time that y'all are giving us to actually spread the word and, you know, us working together. You know, I've, Faith, I've spoken to you about some stuff. And so um, I know me and Amanda have spoken. So it's just so great that, you know, we actually get to do this. And I thought it was just, when Amanda approached me, I was like, this is such a fantastic idea. And I'm so honored. I know I can speak on behalf of you guys. We're so honored that you could have included us. So thank you so much. Yes, no, thank you guys so much for coming on. We love um, having our community partners like you guys who we're able to work with. And we both talk about our things. I mean, yes. And just to let y'all know, you know, that, um, that you guys are open 24-7, and you guys are open now even with the COVID-19. COVID-19, you know, has messed up a lot of things, but just to let the community know that, you know, the Domestic Violence Intervention Center is still open to you guys, um, just like we are. So, yeah. I do want to say something. I just want to say that um, if there is a victim that ends up listening to um, this podcast, I know what it feels like to feel isolated and I know what it feels like to feel like you have burned bridges and people have cut ties with you and you've blocked people out of your life and you may feel very alone in the situation that you're in, but I just want you to know that there is a place, there's tons of places where there will be a group of advocates that will rally around you and you will find things in those advocates that you probably have not experienced in a very long time. You will have people that will listen to you. You will have people that will advocate on your behalf. You will have people that will believe in you because a lot of times when we are in those situations, we are told that we're nothing. We're told that, you know, we're never going to have anybody, that that person is all we have. And I just want to encourage you to call the hotline. If you are in that situation and maybe you have your own house and you don't need shelter, but to call the hotline just to talk to someone. Sometimes we have people that just call and say, listen, I'm having a really bad day. I'm in this situation. And, and they don't necessarily even want any of our services, even though we encourage it. They just want somebody to tell them that. It's, it's going to be okay and that there's a way out. And so if you're a listener or if you know somebody that is going through this situation, please reach out. Please call the 334-749-1515 and ask for an advocate. We will go above and beyond to try to speak into your situation as much as we can. And that's all I wanted to say.
Thank you. Yeah. So we're going to end it on that because I can't think of a better way to end it. Um, so thank you guys so much for joining us and we will see you next week. Bye. Okay.